This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. This is Josh Rapoon, host of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series is committed to the stories of innovative, creative, and imaginative educators and education leaders across the Hawaiian Islands. Our goal is a thousand points of light, and as we approach 26,000 downloads to date, the wind is in our sails. Speaking of a thousand points of light, my guest today is Dr. Chad Miller, our 2012 Hawaii Teacher of the Year, a National Board Certified Teacher, and currently a specialist at the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Institute for Teacher Education. Dr. Miller also serves as the Director of Teacher Development at the University's Uehiro Academy for Philosophy and Ethics and Education, and both the Progressive Philosophy and Pedagogy and National Board Certification Teacher Leader Curriculum Studies Master's programs. He also serves as philosopher-in-residence at several public schools, where he supports teacher candidates and veteran K-12 teachers as they incorporate the activity of philosophy into their classroom practice through the use of the philosopher's pedagogy. Whether he is thinking about the environmental implications of driving clouds with third graders, the cyclical nature of violence and drug abuse with sophomores in their language arts classes, or the value of living the examined life with graduate students, Dr. Miller finds himself participating in extremely meaningful and rigorous philosophical inquiries with students and teachers each day. Amber Makayao, the director of the Hanaholi Professional Development Center, said the following about Dr. Miller, and I quote, in the words of Che Guevara, Dr. Miller lives and educates by the credo the duty of every revolutionary is to make the revolution. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Chad Miller. Chad, welcome to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. So what's up, Josh? I appreciate the opportunity. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it too. So Chad, I would need literally three episodes to cover all the cool elements <laughs> of your life so far. So I decided not to sweat it and focus on what our listeners might find interesting and divide things up into three sections. So the first section is titled Questions for Philosopher Chad. Before we start that section, let me ask you something about your life's journey. So okay. Chad, I want to start in a place that will not catch you by surprise, but might surprise our listeners. I want to talk about football. Back when I played football at Punahou uh, 45 years ago, I went into summer camp as a defensive tackle. And during our first live scrimmage in that first series, I made four solo tackles in a row for losses. And I was, Chad, to say the least, amped up in that moment. And then the coaches took me out and placed me at offensive center where I spent the next three years. And though I did make Allstate honorable mention my senior year at center, I still look back on that moment with some feelings of loss and regret because I loved playing defense. So the story of how you ended up playing football at John Carroll University is similar. So what's that story? And in what ways did that experience put you on, as you call it, quote, a particular path? Yeah, well, that's a that's a big question. I'll do my best to answer it. But yeah, I think football has been a huge part of my life. My parents are sports fanatics. My dad was a football coach, and I 
pretty much played quarterback most of my life growing up. I mean, I got to high school and, you know, moved into a system where the quarterback was really a running back and that wasn't my, my situation. And so slowly started to transition to playing other positions like defensive end and tight end. 6'4", 220 now, I was 6'4", maybe 190 in high school. Mm-hmm. And played a lot of offense, played a little bit of defense. But as I moved through high school, I started realizing that my passion was really about tackling people rather than getting <laughs> tackled. Right. When, when I was thinking about colleges and I was getting recruited to play, there was really no schools that were interested in me playing defense. They're all looking at me to be a pass catcher of some sort, except John Carroll. Uh, they were really interested in me playing defensive end, and that really piqued my interest. For a school that was a little bit smaller than what I wanted to go to, you know, my parents having gone to Ohio State and a you know, huge school, John Carroll having, you know, less than 5,000 people on campus wasn't really on my radar. That in itself put it on its radar. And then I started meeting some alumni, had a good family friend that went there and spoke highly of the brotherhood that he created there as being part of the team. And then also about his Jesuit education and how that really kind of shaped his worldview and allowed him some perspectives that he hadn't thought of before. So I guess to come back to your question about football is because I was interested in tackling people, I I was opened up to a perspective I didn't even know existed. Mm. And that meant that you ended up at John Carroll. I mean, you said in an interview that they were the ones who recruited you and that set you on that path. And so many things happened as a result of that, right? Most definitely. I mean, they recruited me and they're really interested and I went on a recruiting visit there and I still wasn't all that interested in going to such a small school. But even on my recruiting visit, met some really, really just cool guys that I bonded with right away. They're still my friends to this day. But it really opened me up to what a Jesuit education might be because I had no idea and I really wasn't interested as an 18-year-old in learning what that might be. I was just interested in playing football, which I knew I could do. You know, I had an opportunity to play my freshman year, which is unlike many places. So that all of that really got me interested in going. And plus, it was about an hour away from where I grew up on the south side of Cleveland and my parents could see me play. I knew I wasn't going to the NFL and it was important for my parents to be able to see me play still. Mm. And your parents went to Ohio State. Correct. So, Chad, we might have to stop this interview right now because I'm a proud graduate of the University of Iowa, and we we have a hard time talking to Ohio (laughs) State people, even people related to Ohio State people. (laughs) Uh, I was born without a choice. I had to be a Buckeye fan. So, um, but we'll just look at it. This is Big Ten brethren right here. You know, we're we're a Big Ten family. I I think we have to look at it that way. I I never thought I'd hear the word (laughs) Buckeye in one of my podcasts. Uh, So, what? We might have to have my editor cut that out. So, Chad, you you graduated from John Carroll in 2001, and I'm going to read a short paragraph from an interview you posted to John Carroll's website, or was posted to John Carroll's website. In response to a question, you said, in first-year seminar as a freshman, my professor was Dr. James Swindle, a professor of philosophy. Jonathan Kozel's Savage Inequalities was the first book we read. Twelve of us were sitting in a circle, and Dr. Swindle asked, Chad, why don't you start us off? What did you think about the reading last night? I had taken copious notes, and I started sharing back what was in the text. He stopped me and said, we all know what the author wrote, Chad. I want to know what you think about it. I wasn't prepared to answer that question. So I know this is big, Chad, but 20 years later, I would love to hear your answer to Swindle's question. What are your thoughts about savage inequalities? Well, I mean, that, that moment that you're talking about, I'm getting chicken skin, just hearing you read that back, uh, really, I think, set me on a path that I wasn't on before. You know, I was embarrassed by not being able to answer that question. But to come back to his question, you know, 20 years later, 
I, I guess it's more than 25, 25 years later. Mm-hmm. What Savage Inequalities did, particularly those first couple chapters, is it really opened my eyes on perspectives and experiences different than my own. Having grown up you know, in suburban Cleveland, that I didn't necessarily have access to or understanding of. You know, I think in one of the chapters, he paints the discrepancy between what's happening at Nutria High School in Winneka on the North Shore of Chicago to what's happening in East St. Louis, just about the, the economics of it and the, the experience and just what those neighborhoods are set up like. And the punk rocker in me was like, I've heard this before, but this really kind of painted it in a picture that this was happening to kids. It wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. an adult problem. It was dealing with children at a very, very young age. It struck me as being unfair and I wanted to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And do you recall, Chad, like in that moment when you weren't prepared to answer that question about what you thought about savage inequalities, or at least the reading to that point, like even in the hours, the minutes and hours after that, was there some sort of a transition or a transformation underway in that moment? Yeah. I mean, I think being an athlete, I don't like not being good at things. And this was something that I wasn't good at. You know, I looked at my other peers who mostly had went to private Catholic institutions. You know, I'm a public school kid and hadn't been prepared, I don't think, to be in a situation where there's 12 of us sitting in a circle talking about the bigger picture, about our questions, about our connections. Mm -hmm. And so what really started transforming me was, you know, the embarrassment turned into a drive and a drive to never have that happen again, a drive to when somebody asks me a question, I can at least formulate an idea or come up with more questions in that this idea of questioning was at the very basis of my education. That's how I could get better at it, you know, to come back to the competition thing. So I think it, that very moment has stuck with me all these years and really everything that I've done since can be, I think that's one of the impetus of my work. Mm. And it's so trippy that we can trace it back to a football decision that put you in that <laughs> in that position, right? Most definitely. Yeah. Because when you're making a football decision as an 18-year-old, I don't think you're necessarily thinking about career trajectory, world perspective. I mean, unless you're thinking about the NFL, but I knew that wasn't in my cards. And so, yeah, I think it's very trippy. Yeah. And, and then, you know, we're going to get into it later talking about philosophy for kids, but in a way that moment that you experienced there with Professor Swindle is something that you're going to help train kids to deal with in the future. Like 25 years later, that's the work mm-hmm. that you're doing. Yeah. I mean, and probably need to reach out to Dr. Swindle to let him know what you know his legacy has been. Oh, I'm sure he would love that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So in that same John Carroll interview where you talked about football, you said the following. When I mentored high school kids, I challenged them to study something that they wanted to learn about, not to think about what job they wanted. Here in 2021, Chad, the the national conversation, at least in my opinion, has shifted dramatically towards what author Stephanie Malia Krauss, author of the book Making It, calls currencies, competencies, connections, and cash. And there's just so many conversations around soft skills or durable skills or essential skills and job readiness and all of that. So I wonder what you're thinking about, Chad, in terms of the practical and the philosophical, like, are we on the wonder meter? What's on your mind and heart with regard to wonder and inquiry and discovery in our collective culture here in 2021? To use the metaphor of a pendulum, I think we might be swinging back in the right direction where wonder is being a little bit more accepted Mm -hmm. or inquiry is being a little bit more accepted as part of one's 
educational experience. However, I'm not so sure, you know, sitting in the midst of a pandemic where people are leaving their jobs and they're unhappy. I just don't know what that's going to do for children who are making decisions about their schooling and about the type of schooling they want to go to in terms of what they're interested in. Because that we still live in a society where we value certain types of work, certain types of living, and we think that there's certain pathways that take us there. And there is in some ways, right? But I think that what might be happening as these conversations are open up, there can be an other way of doing it as well. And I don't have my, my thumb maybe on the, on the pulse as much as I need to, considering my children are only two and three. But we've made decisions about their schooling where wonder and play are at the very center of their schooling. Mm. In the state of Hawaii, as you do your work, are you seeing the wonder meter moving more back in the direction of wonder here in our islands? Um, yeah, it is moving in the right direction because, it, it, you know, my work when we first started presenting philosophy for children, it almost seemed as like a niche program in a way. Yeah. And it wasn't really the idea of like, oh, yeah, that's cool, you know, to do with elementary school kids on a Wednesday when Dr. J comes in. But now that I'm looking at some of the national initiatives and standards movements that are coming down, this idea of thoughtfulness and compassion and questioning seem to be grounded at the very nature of almost all of them. So that gives me hope that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say is that you're giving me hope in, in expressing it that way. And that, you know, somehow within the collective culture, thoughtfulness becomes a value that reasserts itself. It's a battle. It often is overwhelmed by other forces that push over it and force us into the practical. But maybe thoughtfulness is, is making a comeback at this point, And I'm feeling hopeful about that. Yeah, and I think that hopefulness and actually listening are probably tied hand in hand. And when we look at our collective culture, it doesn't seem like we're listening per se. Agreed. I think we're maybe moving or limping along into the right direction, but I still feel like there's a long way to go. Yeah. And, and again, you know, questions for philosopher Chad, it seems like the least I can do if I, if I vehemently disagree with somebody is to just discipline myself to sit and listen. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to react. I just have to listen. And that's a, that's a philosophical approach to life, right? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And when we first started doing philosophy with children, I know that you have probably questions with this later, mm-hmm. is that I used to think that it was primarily an, an activity about expressing your ideas, a verbal one. Yeah. But the more and more I've done it, the more and more I'm realizing it's really an activity grounding and listening because you're hearing perspectives that are so different than yours or experiences that are so different than yours. And oftentimes our own experiences and thoughts are just getting in the way of that, right? And conversations with most adults, many, I want to say many adults, we just don't, we stop talking just so we can, the other person can finish and we are going to say what we are going to say anyways. Yeah. And because we haven't had experiences where it's really truly about doing inquiry, they've mostly been around doing debate where you're either right or wrong. And think about the TV shows that are on. Yeah. Pretty much every channel, including ESPN, has two guys who are sitting at a table yelling at each other about something or other. You know, yeah. you're either on one side or the other. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it seems like the easiest step to take towards being a thoughtful listener is just to simply ask or to prompt with, tell me more. That's all you have to do, right? And then just listen. So that's that's very cool. So Chad, in a video that you provided, you talk about what happens when you have a feeling and then you want to recreate that feeling. And the example you provide is the first time you dunked a basketball, which you then wanted to do over and over because you loved the feeling. We might lose our listeners here, but let's use the example of doing philosophy rather than dunking a basketball. So is it possible to want to do philosophy, to do thinking deeply in the same way we might want to dunk a basketball or score a goal? Like, Can someone be a philosopher in the same way that one can be a basketball player? I think the access to being a philosopher is actually an easier path than becoming a basketball player. Mm. And part of the reason is the, we're all born with this ability to be a philosopher. You know, if you're born with the ability to wonder, then that is at the heart of a philosopher. You know, not to you know to paraphrase Socrates. And so, I think the activity of or doing philosophy is accessible to everyone. I mean, if anyone has ever been around young children, they ask tons of questions, and oftentimes they don't want to hear answers. They want to engage in the thought of the question. Yeah. With the, the video that you're, you're referencing was, uh, I was really thinking about how do we get to help people understand that they are philosophers, that they can do this. And part of the way that we do that is just engage them in the activity of it. What does it feel like to do philosophy with somebody? What does it feel like to have a stimulus or a stimuli of some sort and pose questions and hear other people's ideas and you know reflect on those ideas and, and take ownership of the learning process? And I think so the, the, the pathway for me to philosophy is far easier than being a basketball player. Mm. Because I mean, when you're a basketball player, not everybody has access to dunk. I sure can't dunk anymore. You know, I think my 20s left that behind. So yeah, yeah. Have there been moments, again, we're going we're gonna to talk about P4C a little bit later, but have there been moments where you can actually see the kids having feelings as they do philosophy in the same way that you might watch, for example, on TV or at a live basketball game, somebody experiencing, you know, in flow, we might call it the, you know, the optimal experience, the the ecstasy of that experience. Have you seen that happen? Have you seen it on their faces and their expressions? Yeah. And I wish that you could tap into what's going on in my brain right now. I think I just relived about 20 years of seeing it on kids' faces. There's the, you know, the excitement in their eyes. There's the, you know, when somebody comes up with a great idea, kids making the, my brain is exploding look or just pointing at somebody or being able to say that I'm same as me. And so I think that excitement around when we get into the flow or groove is captivating. And in a way, I never really thought about this. That might be what keeps drawing me back to philosophy, which drew me there in the first place. And what continues to draw me back to my work on a daily basis now is that that feeling that I get personally, but I also, the feeling I get when I see other people mm. get excited over, over the activity. Mm. And so follow-up question that relates to education. So how does this translate to a discussion on one's philosophy of education, for example, like what are the feelings we want teachers to have that they will want to repeat over and over again? And you talk about that in the video. 
the, the feelings that the te- that we want teachers to have or that we want yeah. students to have. Yeah. In other words, when we talk about, for example, like we want to move project-based learning forward or inquiry learning or, you know, things like this. Sometimes I wonder that we don't talk enough about what the feeling is when you do something like that in the classroom with your students, that there's something it's, it's akin to dunking a basketball or yep. being a philosopher. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say it's intoxicating, but I think <laughs> it's along those lines and it's something that you want to recreate over and over again because it's not something that you're doing to other people. It's not something that you're doing to students. It's actually something you're actively doing with them. Yeah. So you're directly involved in the learning process and there can be a bit of selfishness in that because I want to continue growing each and every day. And if that just happens to be with a group of kindergartners, awesome, with some seniors, graduate students, And so that this idea of recreating it over and over and over again, I think is something that when teachers get, they want to keep doing and it causes them to reflect on the process a lot more so they can continue to not only meet those aims, but continue to push them forward and evolve them to be something more, Mm -hmm. more and more intense as the years go by. Mm -hmm. And I'm super encouraged to be hearing the word practice more and more and more lately when we're talking about teaching. It wasn't a word that I heard ever when I first started teaching back in the early 90s. And now we're spending a lot of time talking about practice. And when you talk about, you know, doing philosophy or being the, the, the philosopher or being a basketball player, we are talking about practice. I mean, we have to, we have to practice to get, to get to these places, right? Most definitely. And I think that part of that practice, you know, is like athletics. I think yeah. videotaping is an under, underused <laughs> skill. Uh, and, and the idea of with just maintain constant reflection on on our practice, you know, what went well, what do we need to work on, where are areas of growth, that seems like a part of teaching that sometimes we let slide just because there's not time for it. Yeah. And I think those who make time are the ones that continue to evolve and grow and meet the needs of their students, but also continue to love what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. So, Chad, continuing on with questions for Chad Miller, um, and and I apologize, this is a big one. David Epstein has written a book titled Range, uh, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And here's what the noted um, thinker Daniel Pink said about range. Um, And I quote, for too long, we have believed in a single path to excellence. Start early, specialize soon, narrow your focus, aim for efficiency. But in this groundbreaking book, David Epstein shows that in most domains, the way to excel is altogether different. Um, Sample widely, gain a breadth of experiences, take detours, and experiment relentlessly. So what are your thoughts about range versus specialization, which is something we really talk a lot about in education because oftentimes it's about career pathways, right? Which I see is a philosophical question in a way. Yeah. As you were talking, it made me think about athletics. Yeah. And, you know, when we look at, at pro athletes, if you look across the board, I'd say the ones who are most successful probably played multiple sports growing up. They just didn't zone in on, on baseball, per se, at first grade, and that's all they played. Granted, there are some people that did that, but I'd say for the most part, those athletes that play a wide range of sports, mm-hmm. they train their bodies, they train their minds in different ways, and, and they get these different experiences. And I think that education can be the same way. The idea of specializing far too early is something that I'm concerned with. Mm-hmm. And I think that what the specialization has done too is it's removed many of the arts and humanities from public schooling, or they were never there, has kept them out. I think that there's a lot to be 
to be learned by engaging in these other activities that may not be directly related to engineering or whatnot, but I think can develop a person. And it really kind of begs the question of, well, what is the purpose of education? And that's one I think that's been answered over and over again, but we're still not necessarily too clear on what the purpose of education is, especially a public education. Mm. And this really came home to me as I was preparing for our conversation today and, and looking through all the philosophical elements of your life. And it worries me, it concerns me sometimes, Chad, that we don't, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about thinking like, you know, what do you, what do you have to do? What, what thoughts do you have to have to be an engineer? But where is the space that we need to make? How do we make space for just wonder? Like just thinking about things that don't have any, you know, life and death or career or job possibility consequences. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes complete sense. And it just makes me think about when kids enter their schooling experience at, you know, preschool or kindergarten, they're full of questions and they're full of wonderment. Yeah. But that slowly gets beat out of them, you know? So by the time they get to high school, those questions and wonderment are on life support or they're no longer there and we got to dig them out. And what happens is they start mistrusting their own ideas because rather than, you know, engaging in a story, it's story time and being able to ask all these questions, they're given the questions by the teacher or at the end of the chapter. And then they're, you know, to answer a, a certain set of questions. Yeah. And what happens is a slow mistrust of their own ability to wonder, their own ability to question, their own thinking abilities. And that to me is something that becomes a problem for adults. Mm -hmm. Because like me, when I got to John Carroll, I mistrusted my ability to answer a question. Yeah. Uh, I responded with facts that I read out of a book rather than something that I might have been thinking or a connection I could have made or something that really made me think about. So just taking it from my own perspective is that I can't imagine if I would have went to a university where there's 700 people in a classroom where I never had the opportunity to hone those skills yeah. and really think about that. And so I feel, my, I feel lucky and, and blessed, but why did I have to go to a, a private university, a Jesuit university to be able to have that opportunity? Why wasn't I afforded those opportunities earlier in my public education? Yeah. Amen to that. Absolutely. So, so Chad, one more question in this section. Look, I cannot reconcile your passion for punk rock and your passion for philosophy. So please, Chad, explain. I think those who know me well know I've listened to punk rock for pretty much most of my life, at least beginning in my, my early teens. And this was before I was ever exposed to you know, academic philosophy or even the idea of what philosophy might be. And uh, there's something there when I first heard Nirvana's Nevermind and I think it was 1991 on the, I was on a, on the bus. I never took the bus home, but I came, I was on the bus home and Kelly Strebelo let me listen to her Walkman and it, <laughs> my life changed. It was the first time that I'd, I'd heard it, Smells Like Teen Spirit. And that put me on a path of finding other music that I liked, the other music that struck something within me. And when that, while that was happening, what these punk bands were singing about were things that were getting me to wonder about culture, society, economics, things that weren't necessarily in my schooling or something I was talking about with my family or my friends at that time. But it really kind of put me on this path of thinking about bigger issues. Mm. Granted, the songs were two minutes long, two and a half minutes long, and there's plenty of punk rock songs about girlfriends and all that <laughs> that I enjoyed as well. But the ones that really stuck with me were 
you know, coming from bands like Rage Against the Machine and Pennywise and 15 and Anti-Flag, ones that were really getting me to think about these bigger issues that were happening outside of my suburban, my Southern suburban Cleveland area. And I think what that did is it sparked this sense of wonder in me that may have been missing in other parts of my life. And so the, the connection for me between punk rock and philosophy is I think punk rock primed me for my philosophical introduction at John Carroll. And so while it took me by surprise on what I thought, it had already done something, I think, in my subconscious that I was interested in. And so when I was taking other philosophy classes and they're thinking about these big questions about consciousness or political philosophy or about existence, I'd been thinking about them and just maybe didn't know it. I I knew the songs by heart. So the connection is punk rock was my introduction to philosophy and continues to be something that I, I, I lean on heavily. Wow. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. Just this triangle of football and university and punk rock and thinking and philosophy. That's, that's very cool, Chad. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. After this short break, we will continue our conversation with Chad Miller. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Chad Miller, a specialist at the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Institute for Teacher Education. So Chad, one of the subjects I wanted to cover today is philosophy for kids, known as P4C. And the way I want to start this is to have you talk about someone you once referred to as, quote, that mysterious man, Dr. Thomas Jackson. What a, what a lovely thing, right? To talk about someone you respect, admire, and care deeply about. So who is this mysterious man? Dr. Tom Jackson, widely known as Dr. J. He is one of the, the founders of Philosophy for Children in Hawaii. I think there is a handful of people, but he was most notably brought it back in 1984. And what I mean by brought it back is Philosophy for Children is an international movement that began on the East Coast of the continent. And Dr. Jackson went and learned from Matthew Littman, who was the creator of this. Um, at the time, it was a program. And he learned from him and brought back what he had learned to Hawaii and slowly but surely started introducing philosophy to children in the islands. And I skipped a huge section and no disrespect to all the work that Dr. J did up in in, in 1984 until now, but he was really the grandfather of the work that we're doing and continues to be very much involved in the, in the work. 
was this actually in a meeting with him yesterday. Mm-hmm. For those of you who have, who have not met him, he is a child at heart. And I mean that in the absolute best sense of the description. He lives wondrously. He is in his 70s, but unless if you didn't know it, and he was sitting in a circle with some second graders, he would fit right in with their ability to engage, with their ability to wonder. He inspires people of all ages to really ask questions and to trust each other, to trust that what you're thinking matters. So many people have seen them as their mentor. I think elementary school children love him. Graduate students at the university love him, largely because he values what you have to think. And he models in every sense of the way his philosophy on teaching, his philosophy on life, he lives it every single day. And for me, that's something that I'm striving to attain. Mm. Um, just the manner of, you have this, this way that you see the world and it should exude in every aspect of, of your life. So Dr. J, I don't know what, uh, when I called him mysterious, but I think that the more and more I know him, the less mysterious he gets. And I think the mysteriousness of it was that he just lives life in the manner that he really preaches or that manner that he shows. And it's, it's authentic. Yeah. I've been around him and um, you're exactly, you're spot on in your description of him. It's, it's almost difficult at first to sort of get used to how childlike he is in that beautiful sense of wonder and inquiry and, and kind of quirkiness that he, he makes you suddenly feel like a child again. He was, I invited him into a faculty meeting when I was teaching at La Pietra to talk about P4C. And, and it took a while for many of the faculty to kind of get used to him. I think we all expect that professional person who's going to come in and speak professionally. And that's not him, not at all. But he is talking about things that are deeply professional in terms of the practice of teaching and learning, which is very, very special. And so, Chad, the University of Hawaii at Manoa College of Education website says that you are, quote, a philosopher in residence at several public schools where you support teacher candidates and veteran K-12 teachers as they incorporate the activity of philosophy into their classroom practice through the use of what's called the philosopher's pedagogy. So what is the philosopher's pedagogy for our listeners? The philosopher's pedagogy is an outgrowth of trying to understand how philosophy for children had evolved into being a way of teaching. You know, I mentioned earlier that Matthew Lippman wrote a program called Philosophy for Children, where it had textbooks and teacher guides and children's stories as a way to introduce the activity of philosophy to, to children. But Dr. Amber Makayao and myself, when we were teaching at Kailua High School, were really trying to figure out how do how does the basic theories of philosophy for children found in the in the program, but also in the work that Dr. J was doing with primarily elementary school teachers and, and kids fit into teaching content, right? As mm-hmm. high school teachers, we're responsible for teaching English language arts. Amber is a social studies teacher. So we're trying to figure out what these concepts look like and feel like and how they can manifest themselves in a content-driven class where we don't have time to just, quote unquote, do philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so what the philosopher's pedagogy was, it's a really, it's an opportunity for us to sit down and really think about what are these commitments that a teacher has to make if they want to bring philosophy, the activity of philosophy into their classroom as a way of teaching, as an approach to teaching. Mm-hmm. And so the, what that was, is well, I think we wrote it in 2012, it was our best understanding at that time, what a teacher must do, what commitments must they make to make this a living and reliable classroom practice as Lippmann promised it was. Mm -hmm. So Chad, let's say that I teach 
biology, the traditional way at a public or private school in Hawaii. And I'm intrigued by P4C, but don't get how it fits with my subject. So lead me forward into this idea. I get this question often. And yeah. oftentimes it's like, oh, let's figure this out together. I have some ideas. So we let's let's have this inquiry about it. And maybe it'll emerge. But okay. for me, one of the first, I mean, the first commitment of the philosopher's pedagogy is the teacher must live the examined life, right? We mm-hmm. must be willing to ask questions and wonder about things and listen to ideas that are different than our own and suspend our beliefs in, in, in some instances to think about these things deeply. And if we're unwilling to do that, then it's, we can't ask our students to do that. So oftentimes teachers are afraid or unwilling to, to even live that examine life. And that's, that really has to be the first step that you mm-hmm. want to think about things deeply. And so the way that to approach that biology teacher, I'm not, I, I would like to know who they are and where they're coming from, but I think in general, you know, one of the things that I, when I think about philosophy is biology began when somebody wondered about something at first mm-hmm. and asked a question, right? Mm-hmm. And then the discipline of biology was born out of those questions and what they followed down. And so sometimes I'm, I'm wondering, I may ask, is it more important for students to understand, you know, certain concepts that have been thought about and developed and evolved over time? Or is it, is it more important or is it just as important for them to ask those questions to begin to think about those concepts and theories and ideas on their own? And then those are become another perspective. And so I'm not saying throw out the content. I think the content is very, very important. I just think there might be another way of approaching content, specifically when you're thinking about labs and things that you're doing. You know, my biology courses, we dissected things, and then I had to fill out a worksheet and turn in the worksheet. We never talked about the process of what is this making me think about? I had a lot of ethical questions. Should I be doing this? And all of that, I think, is very much part of what biology could be. It's hard to put that on a bubble sheet or on a worksheet and have an answer key for some of those questions. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean, I was actually trying to imagine myself as that biology teacher. I don't know, let's say that I was back teaching at Iolani, which I did, you know, back in the early 2000s, and that there are these content questions, the facts of biology, which have been discovered over time through wonder because people were wondering about this, that, or the other. But then there's these other things that I couldn't quite work my mind around, which were the big essential questions of biology. I'm, you know, I'm kind of pretending to be that teacher, but thinking to myself, like, how would I even go about the process of discovering the big questions of biology? And then I might also think, like, in what ways do I have to do that? And in what ways is that really the work of my students? Yeah, and, and I want to claim here that I'm no biology teacher. I think you've caught me on my limits of biology <laughs> understanding. Neither am I taught history, yeah. <laughs> I've been in biology classes in high school where we've done philosophy with the content, and the content becomes a stimuli for kids to pose questions, to pose wonderings, to have connections to. And part of it is the teacher just letting go just a little bit mm. on this content, right? We've selected our content for a reason. We're reading this book, we're looking at this lab, we're looking at this this video for a purpose. But by opening it up and allowing the students to have a little bit more relevance, to have some meaning and use that stimuli to pose some questions and then have them choose the question they most want to think about oftentimes doesn't take us down the exact path we thought as a teacher. Yeah. But sometimes it allows us to get very deep to gain a depth that we wouldn't have had access to otherwise. Yeah. And so it's possible. I've been in some very, very amazing inquiries, even with second graders around biology and and sciences, just because it was a teacher approaching it. 
in a different way and allowing access to the students to this content in a very different manner than a traditional classroom would. Yeah. I had this magic moment, Chad, when I got a chance to observe a workshop that Amber Makayao, who's the director of the Hanahole Professional Development Center, put on for a bunch of educators talking about addressing climate change, no matter what subject you teach. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started to make the connections to like, if you're going to take on climate change, there are huge biological questions embedded in the process of trying to figure out what is climate change and how to address it. And that's where the connections really started to happen for me is that there's something, there are some, these bigger problems that have to be solved out there in our society, in our culture for planet earth. And that that might be the door to walk through that gets kids ever more into wonder and inquiry and, and into philosophy and ethics and morals and things like that. Right. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, as you're talking, should those questions be provided to the students or should the students be provided an opportunity to pose those questions? Because yeah. like, who, who, who owns the questions about climate change and biology? Right. Thinking that the children that we're working with probably own them the most since they're going to be affected by it the most. Yeah, exactly. And that's an awesome question. <laughs> and that's an awesome conversation amongst teachers who are developing their practice. So that's, that's very cool. So, Chad, I, I read a bunch of letters you provided uh, for me by young children, musings on thinking and wonder and inquiry written by these, these kiddos. And one of them expressed pretty clearly that she loved the idea of owning a thought that she did not have to feel bad about what others thought about her ideas and thoughts because they are her ideas and thoughts. She actually expressed this in this letter. And I was like, wow, you know. And so what work are you and your P4C colleagues and other colleagues doing to help coach, guide, mentor, and support this child as she navigates, as she grows up, as she confronts things in her future like cancel culture and arguments about critical race theory and dark things on the internet and the, the deep and apparently intractable divisions in our society? Like what what are you putting in her base camp backpack as she starts up the mountain? Well, um, I just felt like a huge sense of responsibility with that question. Mm. Um, I think one is this idea that owning your thoughts happens in a certain type of space. And I want to, I want to give props to like where that was coming from is from an intellectually safe space where uh, students mm. feel free to express any idea or ask any question so long as respect for all peers is honored. And what happens after that is I think students have the ability to almost be honest with themselves and think about their thinking and be able to express raw thoughts, even if they are just half thoughts. And so for this particular child to take ownership of her thinking also comes in line with another tool that we really, I think is part of P4C Hawaii is the Good Thinkers Toolkit, mm. which is something that Dr. J put together based on some research just on what do we mean by critical thinking, right? There, it can mean everything, so it can mean nothing. And what he did was put together a toolkit for kids and teachers to understand when we're thinking well. These seven aspects of thinking, asking for clarification, providing evidence and reasons to support an idea, using counterexamples to test an idea, asking if it's true, identifying implications and if-thens. But I think what those do is it provides students with the tools to understand what they're thinking and why they're thinking it, right? So they know what idea is theirs and not necessarily their parents. I think this because, and that's something that we work really early on with kindergartners is owning the word because. 
Mm. So if we're going to make a statement, let's be able to understand why we have this statement. But yeah. also I think what, what happens is it's okay to change your, your thinking. And this is something that many teachers do. And, and Emily Fox at Sunset Beach Elementary School, formerly of Ka'ele Pulu, really values this idea of changing your ideas and mm. being confused as part of the learning process. So when you do have an idea, it may not be your idea for the rest of your life. You know, you may hear something else that makes you question it or, you know, makes you really think about it differently. And I think that this is part of the, the culture that we have right now is that once an idea is your idea, you never think about it again. It's just in there engraved in stone. One of the things that philosophy is really trying to do is, no, that's not necessarily true. We can change our thinking, but we just have to have good reasons on why we're changing it. And so for this student to take ownership of her thinking, I'm not necessarily sure the exact wording that she used, but I'm, I'm just thinking that she might be proud of this is where she's at now. And that the ability of doing philosophy knows that it's okay to alter those thinking, that thinking. It might be tomorrow, it might be in 10 years, it might be in 50 years. But sometimes we have events in our life that cause us to go back and think about why we think a certain way. And oftentimes those are when tragedies happen, but it doesn't always have to be. It can be the mundane things in life where we can really that can cause us to revisit our thinking and our beliefs. Mm. That's great, Chad. I'm going to put a link in the show notes about the Good Thinkers Toolkit. You know, my lifelong mentor who passed away a few years ago, he was my English teacher at Punahou School. His name was Paul Doc Berry, and he and Dr. J were very close to each other. And Doc was the one who handed me the Good Thinkers Toolkit when I was a teacher at La Pietra. And I actually remember that coffee session up in Manoa like it was yesterday. And it was a beautiful gift that he handed to me. It helped shape my Socratic gentle, as Dr. J would put it, gentle Socratic inquiry going forward in in my classrooms. And so I'll, I'll make a note of that in the show notes so that people can access it. So one more question before we go to break and end this section about P for C. Chad, in a, in a longer article about a $1.35 million grant from the Uihero Foundation in 2017 for P4C, I read that three out of the last six Hawaii State Teachers of the Year are P4C Hawaii practitioners. So this is a moment for you to do some shouting out. So who are these teachers and, and what's the cool work that they are doing? Well, I mean, that article in 2027, so it was, I was the Hawaii Teacher of the Year in 2012. Matt Lawrence at Waikiki School was 2014. And Catherine Kane at Waikiki School was 2015. All uh, really amazing P4C teachers. Catherine has since retired. She just retired this past year and is now working with teacher candidates. Yep. Um, Matt continues to do his great work. And really, one of the things that I think was happening in that particular time period was that coming back to your earlier question about the pendulum swinging about wonder yeah. is that there is a value around wonder. There's a value around having a student-centered classroom. And in theory, think some, it's hard for us to sometimes imagine it. And here are these educators that are making it happen. And they're not only making it happen, but their peers, their students, the parents are all valuing it. And they're getting elevated to being recognized, you know, at these very prestigious levels. And so I'm shouting out them, but the one, there's been several teachers of the year since then who use philosophy for children as well, or have worked with some of our philosophers and residents. It's still part of the culture here in Hawaii, where I feel like wonderment is really becoming part of what we're valuing as an education. Mm. And I had this very hopeful moment a couple of years ago, Chad, when I was driving 
to go swim, you know, my do my morning swim off of Kaimana and I went by Waikiki Elementary. I think that there's they're they're the only school in the state, and I hope there are more, that has a mindfulness center on campus at an elementary school. So speaking of philosophy and of putting yourself in the right frame, I just thought that was so awesome that they're doing something like that. And so what's the connection between all of the conversations about mindfulness that are happening right now and philosophy for kids and, you know, general conversations around philosophy? I think that the connection comes from really the origins of it, right? The, the, when they're talking about mindfulness at Waikiki School, they're directly talking about Art Costa's work and habits of mind and the 16 habits of thoughtful, successful people that have really grounded in their culture. But at the same time, P4C has been a, such a big part of their culture. And what they do is I think they have a very good marriage because what we're really trying to aim at in the larger scale of things is we're trying to create a more thoughtful, compassionate society. And we're going to do that by being mindful towards each other, being mindful about ourselves. We're going to live life a certain way. We're going to approach problems and issues and experiences thoughtfully. Yeah. And and that's the most broad work, right? We can get more into detail. I think that's actually somebody's dissertation is what is the marriage between those. And, and there's been some work. You know, Amber has really led a, a research project about the Waikiki School portrait about what really happened in these past 20 years by doing several, several interviews. And what comes out is this notion of the culture is mindful. The culture has is grounded in doing philosophy and that the two have really worked well together and have created something that's been very, very special to the point where now there's a mindfulness center on campus. And interestingly enough, my wife is the sustainability and Hawaiian studies teacher at Waikiki School. Mm. Speaking of one of the big problems that kids can work on in the months and years ahead, right? What are all of the big sustainability questions? And that there's lots of philosophy built into that. Oh my goodness. That's, that's awesome, Chad. So, hey everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will continue our conversation with Chad Miller. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Chad Miller former defensive end for the John Carroll University football team and philosopher in residence in our Hawaii schools. So Chad, as we come down to the end of our time together, I have a couple more questions. So here's the first one. You sent me several YouTube videos to watch about your work, especially about P4C. And also you sent me a couple of YouTube videos as you referenced earlier, you know, Rage Against the Machine and Nirvana, which established your punk rock credentials. What happened is that I actually watched an ad before one of those YouTube videos, because you kind of have to, at least for a bunch of seconds. And the ad was about a robot named Moxie who helps parents who struggle to talk to their kids. And the robot develops a relationship with a kid and eventually engineers a sort of rapprochement between the kid and his parents. And so Chad, I did not know whether to laugh or cry or move to a beach in Tahiti. Like, I just help help me process this because my overriding thought was we're doomed. 
Yeah, yeah, I know the video you're talking about, and I, I felt the same way. I am no way connected to the to Moxie. Is that is that the name of it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I have had this conversation before, so it's just at first I think I was like, you know, like that's weird. But the more and more I got to thinking about it, it really kind of it put me back into uh, John Carroll in 1998 or so. I took a class in artificial intelligence, and I thought the class at the time was pretty boring and. We were exploring things about, you know, when does a robot become a human? What is consciousness? What really makes a person a person? My name is Moxie. I'm a new robot. What is your name? I'm Riley. It's nice to meet you, Riley. What do you do to get ready for bed? Brush my teeth and read a story. I love stories. Would you read a story to me? And all of that was interesting, but I didn't think too much of it because in 1998, having a doll that could have a conversation and a relationship with a child really wasn't on my periphery, I'd say. Mm. And by looking at it, it seems like it's the 2021 version of like a talking Teddy Ruxpin. I think that was like in the 80s one Mm -hmm. or like a a Tickle Me Elmo. Mm. that kids would carry around. But this one seems to have much more personality and can ask children to like, draw pictures, I think is in the ad. Yeah. And so it's, it's creepy. And, but I get where I think the selling point comes from a, my initial thought was without doing any research on it was that seems like it's a certain segment for children that are struggling in some mm-hmm. way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And this provides them a friend of some sort, you know, where they can talk to and, and whatnot. But then that got me thinking about, well, what damage might this do for them down the line? Yeah, it might help their ability to communicate and eye contact and whatnot. But what is this? What questions will this raise or problems will this raise with reality? With what's it mean to be a friend? With what does it mean to even be a person? Is this going to affect their relationships in any negative way or or in any way at all? Mm. And then my other question, this comes back to my punk rock, is who's making money off this? Mm. And what... What is the real purpose of it? Is it to help kids that are struggling or is there another purpose? And that really kind of reason, I think, is directly in my punk rock roots. Mm. I, I don't really have a, a good idea. I was just like you. I was creeped out. I was like, ah, I, I kind of get it being a parent. But at the same time, that doesn't seem like something I would want to buy my children. But then it brought up those larger questions. Mm. So let me come at it just another way, which is, And I don't mean to catch you by surprise with this question, but maybe it's rhetorical. Like, To what extent have you been thinking in recent years about humans' relationships to machines and to artificial intelligence? Certainly, it's definitely, you know, on the front pages and it's in so many conversations. As a philosopher in residence at our schools, like, to what extent are these kinds of conversations about our relationships to these entities like emerging into the conversations that you're having with your kids? Well, I think Siri is probably the biggest one, you know, that students would, you know, when we have questions sometimes at the very beginning of the year or when they're, when students haven't done a philosophy for, for very long, there's ask Siri, just ask Siri that question. And, And so what makes me worried is there's a reliance upon machines to do the thinking for us. And this comes back to what we were talking about earlier is that when we rely on other things that do the thinking for us, we lose the ability to think or to trust our own thinking, which could be even be worse than losing the ability all in itself. And so it makes me worried. I think that there's lots of lots and lots of cool stuff that can happen. But when we're relying on robots to drive for us and to make those decisions, I, I get a bit nervous, especially when it comes to 
interpersonal communications with other people. Mm -hmm. I know your question was about relationships with robots, but I think the over-reliance upon that is going to directly negatively affect our relationships with other people. Mm. I'm feeling hopeful, though, that because of philosophy for kids, these questions will be out on the table because the kids will surely have them, right? They will be thinking about this. Yeah. What I've learned is that the kids' questions are better than my questions. Yeah. I've been shown that over and over and over and over again. You know, early on in in my teaching career, I would rely on my questions to kind of set the model for what I wanted a philosophical question to look like. And very quickly, their questions became far better than mine. Yeah. I I actually can share with you, Chad, that, you know, if somebody were to ask me, like, what was the best part of being a teacher? I can point directly to those moments where I got to look a student in the eye and say, wow, that was a great question. And yep. what you see on their faces and in their body language in that moment is is just beautiful. I totally hear you on that. Okay, so one one more. Hey, can question. I tell a quick story? Can I tell a quick story related to that? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're reminding me of uh, I had a student, Luis. We were in senior year, it was fourth period, the end of the day. We were reading Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. There's a, an idea in there about time, right? Yeah. That time's not a real thing, right? I, I was the rock. I am the rock. I'll always be the rock. And our class of 33 seniors were really struggling to like what this means. And the bell rings. In the middle of our inquiry, not one person gets up. Oh, and so really, and, and Luis is in the middle of talking about what he's seeing the time really is, and he can't articulate it. So he gets up and starts drawing on the board, and you know, which really moved us into a whole nother. Like I'm getting chicken skin telling the story, mm-hmm. which moved us into a whole nother realm. You know, at some point, twenty minutes later, we're like, all right, this is it's Friday. Everyone's got to go, and we had to pause our inquiry. It just made me think about the power of. When kids are invested, when people are invested in things that matter to us, what we're able to do. And if providing them the opportunity to think about the things that matter to them together. Yeah, that's a fantastic story, Chad. Wow. Uh, I got chicken skin as well as you were (laughs) describing that moment, especially getting up and starting, you know, to write on the board. Wow. So, okay. So, Chad, Sir Ken Robinson passed away in July of 2020, tragically, and really a terrible tragedy for the world. But now his remarkable daughter, Kate, is carrying on his work through a project called Imagine If. And Kate talks about something she calls, quote, education as a provocation, which I find super intriguing. So how can education be a provocation in the context of all of the traditional subject areas that we have student, students work through, like math or computer science or history or statistics? Like how can education be a provocation in all of those contexts? Well, that's, that's a huge question. And, <laughs> and one that I, that I, I I'm, I'm, thank you for asking. And I think about like the idea of provocation has really been typically thought of being as like a negative thing, right? You're kind of annoying somebody or, yeah. or to provoke somebody is that it's a negative thing. But in this light, I think it's really the, the basis of what where true education is. You know, the things that you asked about have been really kind of, this is, this is the way they are. And if we provide students the opportunity to really poke and experiment in those things, the idea of it evolving or students getting a better understanding of what those subject areas and disciplines, what they're grounded in, seems to be really, really profound. And so the idea of being a provocateur, as my 2012 Washington Teacher of the Year, Mark Ray, would say, that's what good teachers do. Mm-hmm. We inspire kids to ask these questions that many people would think are annoying. And that, I think that dates back to Socrates. Right. He was jailed for asking annoying questions about stuff that mattered to him, for corrupting the youth of Athens. 
And so rather than seeing it as corrupting the youth, I feel like we're empowering them by having an education that is grounded in this, in this concept. And it's, it's not necessarily a concept that I think is too far out. There's, you know, schools all over the world that are really promoting this and have been for a long time. All right, what's the, the school in Northern Italy, the free school? That's, isn't this kind of like their, their very basis of what they're, what they're teaching and exploratory and inquiry-based education? Right, right. That's awesome, Chad. Thank you. And thank you for being on the podcast today and being part of this conversation. You can't imagine what a joy it was to get ready to work through all of your materials and to get to know you better and to get to know philosophy for children better. And so I thank you for your work and I wish you and your family well. I hope you stay safe and healthy in the weeks and months ahead. And good luck with your work as you go forward. Well, I appreciate you and I appreciate the opportunity to come on and share my work with a larger audience. You know, anybody who's interested in learning more about philosophy and philosophy for children, please uh, get in touch with me. I'm happy to share. And we'll provide that information in the show notes. So thank you, Chad. Thank you. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our original theme music is provided by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. He has produced 12 albums with over 100 songs and has featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the other major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. This series is funded by Education Change Agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the newly launched What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at MLTS in Hawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline here in Hawaii, stay safe, wear a mask in public places, stay physically distant from one another, and get vaccinated. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take good care.